Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Welcome to City Beautiful Church. My name is Ryan. I'm pastor here. Seriously, somebody ordained me for some reason. Uh, how, do, is there anybody this is their first time? Hey, welcome. Thanks for coming. Thanks for coming. It means a lot that you would join us today. Um, so today we are in uh, our second Sunday in our new series entitled Crux, where we're looking at kind of the foundations. When we, when we go to the center of the center of the center of our faith, what are the things in which we're exploring? And for us as Christians, we believe the cross is at the center of our faith. If that is totally revolutionary to you, come and talk to me afterwards. Um, but we believe that the cross is the, the, the center of the story of God, um, and that everything that we believe as Christians uh, moves towards the cross, and everything that we believe kind of radiates from that. And so we wanted to take kind of eight foundational uh, truths within Christianity uh, and explore them, but specifically to be exploring them through the lens of the cross, and, and we're calling it crux because the, the definition of that word, I think, is a really neat word. Is that, there it is. Um, number one, the word crux means a vital, basic, decisive, or pivotal point. You, we talk about the crux of the argument. What's the foundational thing upon which you're building all the other things? And then secondly, in, in uh, Latin, it means a cross. And so there's a good uh, word play there, which we are big fans of here at City Beautiful Church. So uh, I'm going to pray, and we're going to jump into our second, uh, second episode of Crux. Heavenly Father, um, we testify to the truth that you're here, and that you are with us, and that you are for us, you are not against us. Lord, we thank you um, for these beautiful moments where we come together as your people, your children, your image bearers, that we worship together, that we pour over your word, that we pray with one another, that we participate in the holy sacraments. Lord, all of these little bits of this ecosystem of doing church, um, where else do we get this? Where else do we get to bear witness to what you're doing within a community? So, Father, we thank you for this time. We pray that you would speak to each one of us, not just about good ideas or compelling theology, but also in the way that we meet you, that we understand how we have been crafted. We understand what it means to be a human being. And in that, Lord, there's something deep within us that responds to your invitation to come back to intimacy, uh, to, to step back into our true nature um, as your children. So may the word and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So last week we began uh, by talking about the Trinity, uh, this, this kind of sometimes feels like uh, an overworked or a useless doctrine uh, within Christianity, but what I was trying to, to convey to us is actually this is a really beautiful invitation to understand the heart of God, that God is outwardly focused and other-centered. How many of you like really tried really hard this week to pray in a Trinitarian way? One person, all right. Becky Harm, everybody. We, made, we got one Trinitarian out of us, so by the end of the year, we're all going to be doing that. What, the invitation at the end was just to consider within the, the, the Trinity, one substance, three persons, is there, is, there one, is there one person in the Godhead that you naturally gravitate to? Um, and is there somebody that, if you're honest, you're kind of indifferent to, you don't have enough information on, or maybe you're just kind of nervous, you're a little apprehensive, you know, maybe you really love Jesus, but when it comes to that Holy Spirit business, you don't really know what that's about. But when we kind of craft a prayer life um, where we are purposely pursuing God in all three persons, it helps to round out our image of what God is really like. And so I just want to continue to encourage you down that path. Um, today we're going to be talking about, you know, last week was about divine nature. This week we're going to be talking about human nature. And what I want to do is to kind of take us through the first three chapters of the first book of Genesis. 
Uh, we're going to start with in the beginning because the beginning is a good place to begin. And I want to just kind of go through each part of the story. Not yet. We're not there yet. You can um, go through each part of the story and kind of tell the story and kind of extract things that kind of give us a little bit of an understanding uh, of what it means to be a human being in the way that God has designed us. And so I've broken it down into five chapters. Um, and we're going to do it almost like a book on tape. So I'm going to say uh, the chapter name, and then you're going to make a sound. Let's pick a sound. Who Does anybody remember the chapter, like, you know, the, the book on tape books? Yeah? yeah? Okay, let's, let's just go real simple. Everybody do this. Bing! All right, great. We're going to use that. That's going to be our... So whenever I say chapter blank, you're going to go bing, and then we're going to go into it. Ready? All right. Chapter one. The overflow. You just have to do it once. Turn the page, you know. Chapter 1. We're going to begin in Genesis chapter 1. <laughs> we'll get into it. We've got five chapters to figure this out. These are the first words in Scripture. It's the first story. It's the first book. It's the first revelation of what God is actually like. And it actually becomes this amazing bridge for us as Christians, as Trinitarians, to recognize who we're putting at the center of the story. Genesis 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And for those of us who are Trinitarianly minded, we look at this and we say, ah, there he is. In the beginning, God created. And the Spirit of God hovers over the water. The word there for hover means brooding, almost like a bird kind of hovering in place over the formless void. And the next thing says, and God spoke, and it was so. And so in the very first sentences, in the first chapter of the first book of the Holy Scriptures, we have God, we have the Spirit of God, and we have the Word of God, and that when God speaks, things happen. When God speaks, when the Word of God issues forth, Things are created where there was a formless void. Now there's form and shape and definition. And then the Spirit of God enters in and brings life. We see the Trinitarian God creating in this Trinitarian way that invites us to recognize that at the core of all of it is this God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so just to kind of tie it in with last week, the Trinity reveals that God creates out of overflowing joy from himself. All the other creation narratives at the time were about the gods creating out of strife and discord and brokenness. Sometimes creation was seen as an aberration. Creation is the thing that's messy that we need to get rid of so we can get back to perfection. But in the Jewish story, creation is created out of joy, that it's God's loving circuit of community that he has within himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's out of that place that God begins to create. Because love cannot be contained. Love is not something small and, and static. But love continually expands and reveals itself. And so out of God's love for God's self, God begins to create creation. Love is creative and generous. And so God begins to speak and things begin to happen. He begins to separate and allocate the spaces. He begins to fill in those spaces with plants and animals. And each day, the creation becomes more and more radiant, more and more reflective of what he's really like. And then we come to the sixth day. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. God's final act of creation is to create mankind in his image. Then we see as God's creating, everything is becoming a little bit more intricate, a little bit more higher intelligence, a little bit more reflective of his true nature. And God creates mankind, male and female, and places them in the garden, steps back, and he says, this is very good. 
And then on the seventh day, God rests. And I love that that last line in the poem, which for some reason in our scriptures is in Genesis 2, it says, God kind of sat back and rested and observed all he had created to do. And what the implication of the end of this poem is that God looks and says, okay, now you start doing, now you start creating. And as you create, it's a reflection of my creative nature. And so in the very beginning of the story, God is creating out of this loving joy that he has within himself because he wants to share it. And I think this is so important for us to recognize when we begin our conversation about human nature. I've said before that I had a, a friend in Nashville who was also a pastor sitting on the porch kind of talking about a few things. And he said, so many times when we talk about human nature, we want to begin in Genesis chapter 3 with the fall. And that's how, you know, if you, maybe you learn spiritual truths or something if you're leading somebody to Jesus and you kind of start with, like, all mankind has sinned and is broken. And that's oftentimes where the story starts. He says, how revolutionary would it be if we actually started in Genesis 1, where God creates mankind and he says, it is very, very good. How does that change the way that we see one another? How does that change the way that we see ourselves? if we're actually faithful to the way that the scriptures were crafted to tell us the human story. As human beings, our value is not based in what we believe or how we act, but whose image we're made in. Let me read that to you again. As human beings, our value is not based on what we believe or how we act, but in whose image we're made in. In the scriptural narrative, when we're talking about human nature, image comes first, action comes second. And so often where we miss the mark as human beings, where we miss the mark as Christians, is that we assign somebody's value based on what they already believe. Or we assign them value on what they have done or what they have not done. And that's how we treat human beings. Last week I said that your starting point for talking about God matters because all of your other theologies will radiate out from the core truth of God's nature. But what you believe about human beings and their fundamental basic elements matters because it's going to affect how you see yourself and your story with God. It's going to affect how you see the people that you interact with every day. It's going to affect how you read the news. To recognize what do you believe at the core essence of human beings because then you can begin to build an understanding of what you think human beings do or do not deserve chapter 2 the wound and so we begin in chapter 2 of Genesis, and it's a retelling of the story of Genesis 1. Genesis 1 is a poem where God is kind of the center stage, and he's building, and he's creating, and he's arranging, and he's organizing, and everything's becoming more and more dense and, and beautiful and reflective of his nature. And human beings are kind of this bit part in it. And then in Genesis 2, the writer tells the story again, rewrites the poem, but this time it has a different purpose. If you want to know what the purpose of Genesis this chapter 2 is, just read the last verse, which I won't tell you what it is. That's your homework for the week. But the writer begins to tell the creation story, but from a different angle. This one is very much about human beings, and it's strange because all of the bits and pieces of the creation story are, are all out of whack. They're not in the same order they were in Genesis 1, but the writer is kind of playing with the elements of the story in order to get to the central theme. And so in this part of the story, God says before there was any plants or animals or anything, God creates mankind, and he, he scoops up some dust, and then he breathes into it. And so what's the mathematical formula for a human being? Get some dirt and breathe on it. But there's a profound truth there that we are incredibly physical creatures. The, the word uh, humus that sometimes you've maybe heard in English comes from the Hebrew for this, like, the, the, the stuff of the earth. We're made of the stuff of the earth. That is part of our nature. Our nature is not to run away from our stuff, from our physicality. It's an old heresy called Gnosticism that keeps showing its ugly face in Christianity time and again, where it says the stuff, the physical stuff, that's bad. We've got to get rid of that, and we've got to go towards what's good. And so God also breathes into the stuff. He inhabits it with his life. 
And the Hebrew word for breath is the same word for wind. It's the same word for spirit, ruach. And so God breathes into the stuff that mankind exists in this beautiful creative tension between the earth, the physicality, and the spirit of God, the, 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 the breath of God that's the animating force. And so God takes Adam and he places Adam in this garden, this place of perfection. And there's this very interesting kind of switching point in the story. In Genesis 2.18, there's this line. It says, The Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. It's fascinating. The Lord creates Adam, and he puts him in the garden, and he says, it's not good for man to be alone. And for us, maybe we'd say, well, that's crazy. He has the presence of God. Like, no one has ever had greater access to the reality of who God is than Adam, surely. Like, he's not alone. He has everything he needs. And sometimes we believe that about our Christian journey, right? We say, well, I'm done with people. I'm done with the church. I'm just going to go and follow Jesus on my own. It's just going to be me and God forever and ever, and I don't want to have to deal with messy people. But what we see even here in the beginning is that God has actually created us for community because it's only in community that we can begin to understand the true nature of God. We're not capable of pursuing God in a vacuum. We cannot do it on our own. To think that we can live the Christian life without the church is impossible, as uncomfortable as that make, may make us feel. And it's interesting that God says it's not good for man to be alone. I used to teach that I thought that maybe God recognized loneliness because he too was lonely, but as I've come back to my Trinitarian foundations, I've realized that can't be true. But I think there's definitely a sympathy that God recognizes out of compassion, something that he himself has not experienced at this point in the story, but is still able to name and to bless within his creation, within Adam. And I think this is really important, too, before we get to all the sin stuff that we recognize here, that before the original sin, there was the original wound, and that wound is called loneliness. That loneliness is a wound that sits at the core of the human experience. And the fascinating thing is that we actually know this now from child development psychology, that as babies are born, there's this slow, somewhat traumatic revelation that there's a difference between me and the mother. That's the first that happened to all of us. At some point, we recognized that there was a separateness. There was a difference. There's a chasm to be overcome. And as that baby grows and develops, they begin to recognize there's a third person in the room, and that person is named the father, and the father is the inhibition for me getting what I need from the mother. Childhood is very traumatic. I don't know if you remember this at all. But we know that, that there's that original sense, that original wound of loneliness. Maybe we can call it separateness. And it takes these different avenues as we grow up. Sometimes that loneliness develops into rejection. Sometimes it becomes abandonment. We call it a lot of different things, but at the very core, loneliness or separateness is that wound. Now, this is the interesting thing about loneliness. Loneliness is not a sin. I think that's very important for some of you to understand today. Loneliness is not a sin. It just is. Because loneliness can either be creative or destructive. The original wound of humanity can lead us to creative solutions, to pursuing intimacy. Sometimes we, you know, in Christian language, we call that our hunger, right? Our hunger for God, that we want to pursue God. Why do we feel the need to pursue Him? Because we recognize on some fundamental level that we are lonely. And so loneliness can be this amazing creative fuel that spurs us into pursuing intimacy with God and with one another. But loneliness can also spur us into destructive tendencies where our answer to cover over our loneliness is founded in power and control. If I can control the narrative, if I can control other people, if I can control my own life, then maybe I'll be able to do something about this wound. And that's the fascinating thing that we begin to see as we line it up with the vocation that God gave Adam and Eve in the beginning to cultivate the earth. I actually don't like the way that it talks about this in the NIV translation of the Bible that we just looked at where it says to rule over the earth. Because when we think of ruling, we think power, control, like fix it, get it right. But the word really more means like to cultivate, to work with. How many of you garden at all? 
You know if you garden, if you come in with a controlling mindset to your garden, I'm going to tell these plants where to go. I'm going to tell them when they get rain and water and when they get light. You're, you're done. The real task is to give up your sense of control and to begin to work with your garden, to work with the soil, to work with the sun, to work with the rain. And so our original purpose as human beings, birthed out of this wounding of loneliness, is to cultivate, to help life to flourish, not to attempt to control it, not to attempt to box it in. And I think that has incredible dimensions when we're coming to our human relationships, and there's incredible dimensions when we're talking about our actual first job, which is to take care of the earth that a lot of times in the way that human beings develop cities and the, our attitude towards earth and our attitude towards animals is that we control these things, that we're entitled in some way to have power over the earth rather than working with it, and that's when we find ourselves in serious trouble. But coming back to the human narrative, recognizing loneliness prompts God to craft a loving community in humanity that echoes his Trinitarian nature. And you know me, and I love those $5 words, so I'm going to read this one again. So recognizing loneliness, God creates Adam, he places him in the garden, he says, oh my gosh, it's not good for man to be alone. Prompts God to craft a loving community in humanity. He recognizes what Adam needs, and this loving community echoes God's Trinitarian nature. And so God creates Eve. It says that he removes a rib from Eve's side and kind of crafts Eve out of that. And there's all sorts of amazing interpretations um, of that story that I'm not necessarily going to get into today. But God crafts a loving community for Adam called Eve and places them in the garden together. And what it, Adam and Eve really is is revealing this picture. This is what the fullness of God actually looks like. And the last line in that poem is that this is why a man leaves his family and is you know, cloven to his wife, as the King James says, and the two become one. Because it's a, an echo, it's a revelation. This is what God looks like in his Trinitarian nature, that two becoming one. And somehow when these two become one, they are more than what they were when they were just individuals. And so God recognizes loneliness in humanity. He begins to create loving communities so that humanity, not only can they experience the reality of who God is through the light of the other person, but they actually become more than what they were when they were alone. Chapter 3. The choice. So looking at this piece in the middle of Genesis chapter 2, of God creating this garden, creating this space of uh, beautiful perfection, this invitation to intimacy. Everything is there provided. This becomes the space in which God puts mankind in order for them to flourish, to thrive, and to fulfill their divine vocation as those who are crafted in the image of God to take care of the rest of the earth and to enable it to flourish. So in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, it says, The Lord God took the man... And put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When you eat from it, you will certainly die. And maybe sometimes we engage with this story and we think, This seems really cruel. Like this cruel temptation that God places in front of them. How many of you were little kids and your, you know, your mom made cookies and put them on the top thing and said, you're not allowed to have any cookies. And all you could think about, all you could think about was getting cookies, right? This is, you know, this is a profound human uh, understanding of like our essential nature. That as soon as we're told we're not to do something, it's all we can think about and it's all that we want to do. It's called the prohibition of the law. And so it seems to us on first reading that perhaps this is very cruel. Why wouldn't God just create the tree of life and just not worry about this other tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Like if Adam is there and everything he has is his, why is this one tree exempt? But I think there's a profound thing for us to understand that's a difference between human nature and the rest of creation. In order to truly love God, we must have the choice to not love him. Let that sink in for a second. In order to truly love God, we must have the choice to not love him. As I was sitting at home 
kind of writing and reflecting on this. I'm looking out my, my window, and then I have this big croton uh, you know, plant, and there's this bee kind of going you know, from leaf to leaf, exploring and kind of doing bee things. And I'm realizing this bee is worshiping God as he's doing this, right? This croton plant doing the same thing. All of creation is worshiping God when it does what it's created to do. This is what scripture tells us time and again. That bee can never choose out of his beeness. And that croton can never cho- choose out of its crotonness. Everything in creation does exactly what it was designed to do. And when it does what it's designed to do, that's what we call worship. And mankind is the only thing in creation that can opt out of its original design. Maybe cats. <laughs> but definitely human beings. And why is that? Again, it seems cruel, but I think there's a profound truth for there to understand about human nature, that God wants us to love him, but in order for there to truly be love, there must be a choice to not love him. Because if there is no choice, it's not really love. Maybe we're obedient, maybe we're accurate, but we're not loving. Think about your relationships. Think about how every day in your relationships there is the option to choose out. That you turn to your spouse, to your family, to your friends, and you choose in every day by your presence. That's because God has crafted you at the core of who you are with this free will. And God took an immense risk to create something in creation that could choose out of relationship with him. But I think the amazing truth about this is that life, human life, flourishes where our free will meets our obedience. Where our ability to choose in and out of relationship with God, when that meets obedience with God, that we're not robots that are programmed to do what God says, that we do not take for granted our free will and assume that anything we do, God is okay with it, but we actually recognize where my free will meets obedience to God, my conscious choosing into relationship with him, that is the space in which human life really begins to flourish. And so kind of examining on a deeper level, what do these two trees have to tell us about being a human being? I think it tells us about the pursuit of our lives, that we've been given this choice, and what are we going to do with it? We were created to find life in intimacy with God, not in our ability to manage good and evil on our own terms. What is the pursuit of your life? And a lot of times what's happened within Christianity is that we've reduced it to just being a good person, and we've missed it where we've crafted very moral people, people that make good choices, people that can write out the lists of good and evil, right and wrong, and have totally missed out on the fact that it's not about that. It's about pursuing intimacy with God. It's about pursuing relationship with Him. Because what happens when human beings begin to manage good and evil, right and wrong, and we begin to treat one another as we have determined what good and evil, right and wrong are? What happens when we begin to build societies on our ability to choose what we think is good and evil, right and wrong? What happens to our attitudes towards other human beings? Again, kind of going to that original point, that if we do not recognize that human beings are made in the image of God, then when we begin to manage right and wrong as it comes to other people, we start to find ourselves deviating very quickly from God's original intentions for us. But these two trees are a challenge to all of mankind. Are you going to pursue life in God? Are you going to pursue intimacy with him? Are you going to know him? Not just that you're going to be a good boy or a good girl and you're going to memorize all the rules to life. Are you actually going to pursue relationship with him? Or do you want the power and the ability to decide what you think is right and wrong, what you think is good and evil? And it's that choice that we begin to see where the deception begins to lie. And we move in to Genesis chapter 3. This is how it begins. Now the the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, I'm not going to do the voice. Maybe tonight. I'll I'll work on it. Did God, yeah, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, 
We may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the servant said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And as soon as we're told no, we want to challenge that. We want to push back on it. Because we believe that freedom means an availability of options. This is a Western problem, by the way. This is kind of an American problem. We believe freedom means the availability of options. That's why there's like 26 versions of bleach, you know, when you go to the grocery store. And you're just overwhelmed. How many of you have that? Like you buy the one bleach and you leave and you're like, I got the wrong bleach. This was the wrong one. I need to go back. I need a refund. We believe that freedom is tied into our availability of options. So as soon as we receive a command, as soon as we're invited to obedience, our options have been limited, our freedom has been limited, and our right to self-determination has been limited. Because that's the solution that we've come up with for our human nature. And so then we hear the voice in our heads, that slippery, snaky voice that says, you have options you can be whatever you want to be. Don't let anybody tell you what to do. Don't let anybody tell you what to do. You are free. You can be whatever you want. And Eve believed the lie. And she takes the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and she eats it, and she gives it to her husband, Adam. When we have the power as human beings to determine what we think good and evil is, we're stepping into that lie, that our original wound of loneliness, the way we solve that is through power and control. And we pursue power, the right to self-determination, the right to determine how other people should live their lives, the right to determine what we think is good and evil, what we think is right and wrong. It's a power struggle. It's a struggle of control. But when we choose to pursue life in God, now we're making decisions out of a different space. It's more about submission, healthy submission. It's more about loving relationship. It's more about giving ourselves over to something that is higher than ourselves. And this is the beauty. I'm not saying that good and evil don't matter. I'm not saying right and wrong don't matter. Don't hear me in that. What I'm saying is that when we pursue life in God, when intimacy with Him is the primary pursuit of our lives, good and evil take care of themselves. Right and wrong take care of themselves. Because it's this radiance out of intimacy with God. We do not come to our beloved with this position of power and control and to say, okay, here's the contract that we're about to sign for the rest of our lives called marriage, and here's what I'm going to expect from you. And it's very guarded. You know, a lot of times we enter into loving relationship, even marriage, with the same attitude that we would with our landlord. Here's the criteria. I'm going to pay rent on the first of every month, and this is what I expect in return. And that's a power-controlling nature. That's where our loneliness is leading us down destructive paths. We're trying to control our human relationships, and sometimes we even do that with God. But when we are in loving, submissive relationships, we are opened up, and our love determines how we interact with the other person. And we don't hold back. We have given over ourselves entirely to the, our beloved. And this is doubly true with God, that when we pursue life in Him, we have given over everything we are to Him trusting that however God de defines us as human beings is far greater than any of the de definitions that we could have come up with on our own. And it's that radiance of intimacy, it's the byproduct of intimacy that we begin to label as good and evil and right and wrong, which leads us to chapter four. Oh, you're getting rid of this now. The cover-up. So Adam and Eve are getting ready to eat the fruit. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for them. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? 
He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The woman said, the woman you put me here with, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree and I ate it. And how often do we see that playing out as well, okay? Just a little aside, right? What's a coping mechanism that we have? No, 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 blame goes elsewhere. More specifically to the woman, she did it. She made me do that. We'll do a whole other sermon sometime about like how God has actually defined marriage and how often we miss the point here entirely. Because like, okay, can I, real quick, all right. <laughs> if it's about good and evil, it's about power and control, and then we start to found marriages on that, and then we read stuff about, like, the man being the head of the woman and all of this stuff, and we think that means the man is over top of the woman, he has power over her, and he has influence over her, and he gets to determine what she does, and that is grossly unbiblical, okay? I'm preaching. I'm preaching the gospel right now. If that is the core of how we see things, that human beings are to be managed... And we bring that into our marriages. We bring that into how we raise our children. We miss the mark because it's about power and control. Men, if we realize that our role is actually to lift woman back up into her proper place, which is co-equal with us as the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are co-equal and co-eternal, we have far better trajectory for our role in our spouse's lives. Anyway. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Again, here, even at the beginning, we see those three values that we've claimed as the core of our community, intimacy and identity and purpose, that God asks three questions of humanity, and he asks those same three questions of you today. Number one, where are you? The question of intimacy. God knows. God knows all things. He knows exactly where you are, but he wants you to name it. Where are you in relationship to me? Why are you hiding? Why do you feel like you can't be in my presence? That when it says that the Lord God was walking in the cool of the day, it's this invitation for us to do the same, to walk with God. That when God asks Adam and Eve, where are you? He's asking us the same thing. Where is our intimacy? Where is our closeness? Where is our togetherness? And Adam responds, we were naked. And then comes the question of identity. Who told you that you were naked? Who told you that you weren't enough? Who told you that it was shameful to be the way that I created you? What do you feel like you're missing? Why do you feel inadequate? These are the questions that God asks us every day to recognize what we think about our identity. Because Adam and Eve eat of the tree and they look and they feel like their gorgeous naked bodies are not enough that they need to cover over them and they weave together the fig leaves to cover over the beauty that God has crafted. And that third question that he asks Eve, what is this that you've done? What did you do? The question of purpose, the question of action. That you've believed that you cannot be in my presence. You have believed that you are something other than what I have created you to be and that has led you into actions that have led you away from intimacy with me and identity in my true nature. And I hope that you hear these questions, not with God pointing his finger in your face, but as the heartbreak of God on display, that God is destroyed, that mankind, that humanity has chosen out of relationship with him. God's heart is broken. These are the, the woeful cries of brokenness at the center of who he is. When we forget that we were created for intimacy with God, we lose the plot of our existence. When we begin to think it's about us being self-determined human beings, when we think it's about us managing good and evil and being good boys and being good girls, we have lost the plot of our existence. And this becomes the place 
where the original wound leads us into sin. And that's not a popular word these days. It's not popular. A lot of times, in, with, even within the church, in our great rebranding of Christendom in order to make it more palatable to modern sensibilities, we want to chuck out the word sin, but if we're honest, we see it everywhere. Every time I turn on the news, I see this human drama playing out where we think that we've worked out this arcane idea of sin and everything's fine, and then we turn on the news and we see it on display over and over and over again. And there are essentially two kinds of sin that we struggle with as humanity. Number one is idolatry, where we begin to look to created things as our source instead of the creator. We look to our relationships. We look to the success that we have in our careers. We look to the stuff that we own. We look to our political or religious ideologies, and we say, that is the source of my identity. And I want to say this really quick, because this occurred to me during the week, and it's not in my notes, but here's a sermonette for free. If you are threatened by someone else's differing perspective, your ideology has become your identity. If you are threatened because someone sees something different than you, and you need to get them, get rid of them, or you need to fight them, what you believe has become the core of who you are. And you have missed that your value is as the beloved of God, that you're in his image. You are not what you believe. You are not what you do. The second sin, if the first is idolatry, the second sin is injustice, where human beings begin to treat creation, especially other human beings, in a way that runs contrary to God's design. Idolatry and injustice. Sins of intimacy, sins of identity and purpose. And it's that original wound of loneliness that leads us to the destructive path where we begin to believe things about ourselves that are not true and we begin to do things in other people's lives that diminish them, that reduce them as human beings. But I think there's a deeper profound truth about sin. And that's so often the way that we talk about it is in these legal terms that we're, we're guilty or whatever. And it, it reveals to us that we believe at the core human beings are rotten and they're no good. And then they get what they deserve. But I think there's a far deeper profound truth to understanding sin. And even Cole talked about this several weeks ago. At the core, we all want to be loved. Love is the bridge from loneliness to get togetherness. Love is the bridge from an identity crisis to fully inhabiting our true identities. Every human being, out of that original wound of loneliness, wants to be loved, to be accepted, to be found. And sin is so often a cry for love and acceptance. Most sins, unless you are a sociopath, is your bad solution to a very real problem of loneliness. And some of us, our sin is that we regress, we hide in shame. For some of us, it's codependency. We latch on. We consume other people. For some of us, sin is aggressive, that we press in and we shake up and we break things and we destroy them like a bull in a china shop. But whatever it is, it's this covering over of our feelings of inadequacy, that we're not lovable, that we're not acceptable. And it may not always be so obvious in our sin patterns that that's really the core question. That's the core problem is that we want to be loved. And I think this is very, this can be very easy for us to accept until we have to believe that this, uh, that we have to believe it about those who have brought the greatest wrongs upon us. Chapter five, the recovery. Perhaps at this point, you are like our friend Paul in Romans seven who says, who shall save me? because you're feeling a terrible. There's hope. It's going to get better. It's like Billy Graham says, I've read the last page of the book and it's all going to be okay. The recovery. So what is God going to do? What is God going to do with this tragic human play? How is he going to rescue us and restore us? And so what we see is that the biblical narrative from the time of Abraham on becomes a story of God, first of all, setting aside a people 
in Israel, and then setting aside a bloodline within that people that he protects until the right time in which he can bring about his Messiah, his anointed one, the one who is a stand-in for all humanity, who takes sin and death into himself, puts it to death in Hades, in hell, and is resurrected into a new humanity. And when we understand the problems of human nature and sin, it better frames how we understand how and why God is rescuing us. This is a gorgeous icon called the harrowing of hell where Christ reaches down into hell and takes Abraham, or sorry, takes Adam and Eve by the hand and lifts them up out of the grave. That when Jesus descended into hell, he's rescuing everybody. He's redeeming all of the mistakes of the past. So through the cross, God is calling us back to what we've always been. What we find in that image on the cross, the perfect image of what God is really like, there has never been a better image of what God is really like than Jesus on the cross. We see in it that God affirms the essential very goodness of humanity as being made in the image of God. That God doesn't look at us and see our sin and say, oh my gosh, what a waste of space they are, how rotten they are, they need to be punished. No, God's heart is broken as it was for Adam and Eve, and he sees in us his children that have lost their way. That he sees in us at the core of who we are in our central human nature that we are very, very good. But God also takes very seriously the covering over of our true essence by sin. God takes very seriously that the wrong beliefs about ourselves and the wrong actions of us as human beings kind of cover over the beautiful pearl that is at the center that is our true nature. And I used to preach, you know, and say like, what is sin? Sin is that which separates us from God. I don't believe that anymore. I don't think that's biblical. I think in our perspective, we discount ourselves from the presence of God because of our sin, but I do not see one place within Scripture where God looks at us and our sin and goes, "Mm mm-mm, sorry, that's too much. I'm so holy that uh, you're actually, I'm getting cooties right now. You You need to figure it out. You need to back away. Like, you do your thing, like, get it figured out, sort it out, be a good boy, be a good girl, and then maybe if you behave yourself... You can be in my presence. I don't see that in scripture. I see God continually recognizing the sin of humanity and being right up in the very midst of it, getting right up in the mess of your human nature and saying, I'm okay. I'm all right with this. I can handle this. And this is what we see on the cross. And then Adam, the first man, led us away from intimacy with God, led us away from our true nature. But in Jesus the second man, the new man, we see the invitation to come back home to our true identities as image bearers and to come back home to intimacy with Father God. I love the way that Eugene Peterson phrases this in the message version of the Bible in Romans 5. He says, here it is in a nutshell. Just as one person did wrong and got us all this trouble with sin and death, Another person did it right and got us out of it. But more than just getting us out of trouble, he got us into life. One man said no to God and put many people in the wrong. One man said yes to God and put many in the right. All that passing laws against sin did was produce more lawbreakers. But sin didn't and doesn't have a chance in competition with the aggressive forgiveness we call grace. When it's sin versus grace, grace wins hands down. All sin can do is threaten us with death, and that's the end of it. Grace, because God is putting everything together again through the Messiah, invites us into life, a life that goes on and on and on, world without end. Stand with me, if you will. This is what the Lord wants to do for you this morning. He wants to affirm that your nature, your human nature, is very, very good because he created you that way. 
But God, because he's a loving and compassionate God, because of that fierce forgiveness we call grace, also wants to rid you of your sin. The wrong lenses, the wrong actions that have led you away from him. To recognize that it's through Jesus, it's through the Holy Spirit that we have been forgiven and that we are offered new life. We're offered a fresh start, an invitation for us to come home, to come back to God, to re-inhabit Eden. And so we're gonna take some time to pray over one another before we step into worship. And it's a two challenges for you to worship, to pray over each other. Number one, pray the Lord gives us a revelation of our value as his image bearers. To speak those words over each other does wonders for our spirits. And number two, that the Lord would give us a recognition of how our sin covers over our identity, that your sin is not your identity. Your sin is not who you are. Your sin is obscuring who you truly are in the eyes of God. And so I'm gonna pray, and I'm gonna invite you to get in groups of two, and you're gonna pray these two things over each other, and we're gonna see what the Holy Spirit wants to do. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize in each and every person here that you look and you say, that is very good. Not because of what we believe, not because of how we behave, not because of what we do, but because we are created in your image. Our DNA looks like you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But Lord, we have all missed that. We've lost the plot. We've believed that we're something other than what you've created us to be. We have done things because we are lonely, because we want to be loved, that have actually made it worse, that have led us away from you. Heavenly Father, would you send your Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, right now to alight upon each of your dear ones here, to give us new and fresh revelation of what it means to be your children, your image bearers, but also what sin looks like in our lives, what is covering over our essential goodness, that we might respond to the invitation to come home, to be restored, to be rescued, and to be renewed. So Holy Spirit, we give you permission to do what you will in this place this morning. We pray this in the strong and the blessed and the redemptive name of the new Adam, Jesus Christ. Amen. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.